Good morning. Today, we're going to be reading from 2 Samuel, chapter 13, verses 23 to 39, and that can be found on page 317 in the Red Bibles. So I'll give you a minute to find that. Starting at verse 23. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor, near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has had shearers come. Will the king and his officials please join me? No, my son, the king replied. All of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him. So he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered his men, Listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, Strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Have not I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. While they were on their way, the report came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. The king stood up, tore his clothes, and lay down on the ground. And all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. But Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, My lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's expressed intention ever since the day that Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My lord, the king should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. Meanwhile, Absalom had fled. Now the man standing watch looked up and saw many people on the road west of him coming down the side of the hill. The watchman went and told the king, I see men in the direction of Horonaim on the side of the hill. Jonadab said to the king, See, the king's sons are here. It has happened just as your servant said. As he finished speaking, the king's sons came in, wailing loudly. The king, too, and all his servants wept very bitterly. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. But King David mourned for his son every day. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there for three years. And the spirits of the king longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. Well, thank you very much for that reading, Rachel. And uh, good morning, everybody. Let me add my welcome to 
Jax, it's great to see you. Hope you've uh, had a great morning already. It's been great to sing, hasn't it, uh, together? Um, I want to particularly uh, just welcome Maureen James, um, who is here for the first time in this building this morning. Maureen, if you don't know, is our longest-serving uh, church partner, and uh, she's been away uh, through her own uh, sickness and family sickness uh, since the beginning of COVID, and it's great to welcome uh, Maureen back uh, to us this morning. Well, let's turn back to uh, this passage then in uh, 2 Samuel uh, 13. And hopefully you've got an outline in front of you uh, on the notice sheet. And let's see what God has to teach us this morning. Well, I spent uh, five minutes or so reading some newspapers on Friday and came across the following stories. A female Chinese tennis player has disappeared without trace after making an accusation of sexual assault against a Communist Party official. A 59-year-old widow from Scotland was scammed out of £124,000 via an elaborate online fraud and almost lost her home. A 16-year-old girl was told she was going on holiday by her family only to find herself being forced into marriage with a stranger. Two adults and two children were killed in a house fire in London in suspicious circumstances. A 16-year-old boy lured his friend into a wood and stabbed him 70 times. Just five minutes flicking through the newspapers. Our world is in a mess. It's a horrible place. Human society is in a state of chaos and pain and groaning. Of course, alongside those stories, there will also be the occasional stories about kindness and generosity and courage. The world is not only and uniformly bad, but it is consistently bad and it is permanently bad. And the stories that I mentioned that took me just five minutes to find in the newspaper, really, they're just a fraction of what is happening. If you imagine the whole of human world and the whole of this created order and the whole of human life as a kind of a, a bubbling uh, cauldron of sin and chaos, those things that I mentioned, they're just the scum that floats to the surface, the ones that make it into the headlines. But below that, there is turmoil. Our world is in a terrible mess. And sometimes, as our prayers have already reflected this morning, our lives are in a mess too. And I think the question this raises for us is what is going to be done about it? Where is the justice? Who is going to sort out the mess and when? I certainly think that's the question that was uh, left us with us last week. In 2 Samuel 13, 1 to 22, the first half of the chapter, a terrible thing happened. Amnon, one of the sons of King David, attacked and raped his sister Tamar. The language the narrator has used expressed the injustice of the event. He called it, you may remember, an outrage. Something that ought not to be done in Israel. And the narrator, as we saw last week, went to great lengths to help us to understand that. That one person's actions have left another person's life in utter ruins. Her dignity in tatters like the robe she tore in her grief, her future as bleak as the ash she put on her head. And the question that was meant to leave us with is, 
What is going to be done about this? Well, you may remember that Tamar expressed the problem from her point of view in that agonizing question, where could I get rid of my disgrace? But as we now come to the second half of the chapter, the question is less focused on Tamar and it's more focused on the wider implications for David's kingdom. Something should not be done like this in Israel. But it has been done. Israel, David's kingdom, God's kingdom, is a kingdom of outrageous injustice. And the question is, what is going to be done about it? Well, verse 23 tells us, if you look at it, that the events that we're about to see take place two years after the outrage of Tamar's rape. And so if we wonder what has been done in between, we only need to glance back at the previous scene. Tamar, verse 20, has been living in her brother's Absalom's house, a desolate woman, we are told. In other words, this is not something she could just pick herself up from and carry on as normal. She's a desolate woman. Her life is in tatters. She will never be the same again. David, meanwhile, we're told in verse 21, is furious, but we're not told with whom. And then Absalom, we're told, in verse 22, hated his brother because of what he had done to Tamar, but has not spoken to him since. So what has been done about this outrageous thing in Israel? Well, the answer seems to be nothing at all. Just two long years of simmering hatred, fury, and desolation. But now something is going to be done. Absalom, David's next oldest son, after Amnon, Tamar's brother, is determined to do something. Absalom is going to put things right his way. And what that means is revenge. As we pick up the story in verse 23, we're going to see firstly Absalom's revenge and then David's response. The story of Absalom's revenge in 23 to 29 begins with a very carefully planned request. Verse 23, two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Bar Hazor, near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Now, I don't know if you know much about sheep shearing in the ancient world, but it's worth knowing that it's not just a job to do. It's not just on your to-do list in the agricultural year. It is actually the highlight of the agricultural year. It is a little bit like a harvest festival, if you can imagine back in the day, cider and wassailing and morris dancing and all this kind of thing. Sheep shearing is an excuse for a boy's own party. And Absalom's plan involves, we are told, inviting all the king's sons to his sheep shearing. David's got quite a number of sons by this point. And so it appears that the tragic events of two years ago have been forgotten. It's like Christmas. It's sheep shearing time. Yay! Happy days. Time for a family party. This is precisely what Absalom wants everyone to think. Now, at the back of Absalom's mind is getting his older brother Amnon to the sheep shearing, but he's not stupid. He knows this is not going to be a simple matter. After all, everybody by now is aware of the animosity between the two sons of David. It might be sheep shearing time, but has Absalom really forgotten and forgiven so soon? Well, watch what he does, verse 24. Absalom went to the king and said, your servant has had sheep shearers come. Literally, I'm having a sheep shearing. 
Will the king and his officials please join me? Now, I asked the uh, staff team on Friday morning what, what this was like in modern terms. And one of the trainees said, well, it would be a little bit like Prince Harry asking Prince Charles to join him at Weatherspoons for an 18th. <laughs> you get the kind of idea? And I, and I think if that happens, anything's possible with Prince Harry, isn't it? Anything's possible. But I think I know what Prince Charles would say. Uh, no. Which is exactly what David says, but a little bit more politely. Verse 25, no, my son, the king replied. All of us should not go. And then he politely, we would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Now you can see, can't you, that this is exactly what Absalom is banking on. His strategy is to set the bar really, really high, knowing that David will say no to the first request, making the next request a little bit more reasonable. So if uh, you're a child living at home, you might want to try this. Something like this. Dad, please can I have a Ferrari for Christmas? No. Okay, please can I have a pony for Christmas? No. Well, what about that mountain bike on eBay for 300 pounds? Okay, I'll, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> Give it a try. So verse 26, Absalom said, well, if not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked, why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he sent him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. The strategy works. You can see that David still thinks it's a bit odd asking Amnon to go. After all, he is the crown prince, the next in line, and this is just a sheep shearing. And maybe that hesitation gives way to a deeper suspicion about Absalom's motives. But he gives in, and so by the end... We know something about the plan. The plan's going to work. And we know something about David, too. We know that David has been manipulated by one of his sons. Something that we've seen before. Well, Absalom's request paves the way for Absalom's revenge. Listen carefully to his speech in verse 28. Absalom ordered his men, listen. When Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Have I not given you this order? Be strong and brave. I wonder if you noticed that Absalom's speech is couched in very careful language. It's not couched in the language of murder, but in the language of war. He commands his men in the way a military commander would command an army against an enemy. More than this, if you're a Bible reader and you sort of know your Bible, you may have heard here a little echo of a famous part of the Bible. Joshua chapter 1. And Absalom here is actually mimicking God's words to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 when Joshua commanded Israel to go and take possession of the promised land and rid the Canaanites, rid the land of the Canaanites. A command that was surrounded with language of God's holiness and faithfulness and God's fulfilling his promises to establish his kingdom. In other words, can you see what Absalom thinks he is doing here? He thinks he's bringing God's righteous vengeance he believes he is bringing about god's justice executing god's vengeance with precision and fairness he thinks he is putting things right righteously and maybe at the back of his mind is that the thought that just as joshua did when he entered the promised land that he is the one who's going to bring about the kingdom of god he's going to sweep away the injustice the corruption that's allowed this outrageous thing to happen maybe absalom thinks and we'll see if this is true in future weeks. Maybe he thinks he can actually do a better job of running this kingdom than David can. 
Well, that is what Absalom thinks he is doing. He thinks he's bringing God's justice righteously. But is he right about this? Well, the narrator has given us a couple of reasons to doubt that he is right. For a start, as you notice the details of the passage, you start to see little echoes of things we've seen before. And we're seeing here that sin has this life of its own. It's a theme that has run right through this series, isn't it? So do you remember in chapter 11, David manipulated others so an innocent man could die? Then in chapter 13, David was manipulated by Amnon so Tamar could be ruined. Now David is being manipulated by one of his sons in arranging an event that will kill another son. And so I think we have to conclude that this story is not about bringing an end to sin and injustice. Just the opposite. It's actually a story about sin and injustice multiplying and rolling on from one generation to another. But there's something even bigger going on than that. I wonder if you notice as Rachel read the passage, that repeated phrase, all the king's sons, you notice that eight times across the passage, the phrase, the king's son is repeated. And this is a reminder that the promise God made to David of his coming kingdom was dependent on a son of David. A son of David ruling righteously over that kingdom forever. But now look at these sons. Verse 29. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. Can you see the picture? These sons of David. One dead. Another a murderer. The rest fleeing on their mules. Do these sons really represent the hope of the future of God's promise to restore his world? And so as we read verse 29, we meant to think, is it really possible that the future of God's kingdom can be in the hands of a man like Absalom? Is he really the one to put things right? Is this the way it's going to happen? Or is he adding to the mess that his father has already created? But of course, David is God's king, and so let's read on and see what David does by way of response. Now, in the second half of this section, David's response builds from what David heard to what David saw, and then finally, right at the end, we're going to see what David did. So what David heard, first of all. The narrator's camera angle now switches back to Jerusalem, about 15 miles to the southwest of Baal Hazor, where the killing had taken place. And while the remaining sons are fleeing on their mules in fear for their lives, Absalom, uh, from Absalom, sorry, a confused and inaccurate report reaches David's ears. Verse 30. While they were on their way, the report came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, not one of them is left. The king stood up, tore his clothes and lay down on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. There are two puzzles here. First, given that the princes are all fleeing for their lives on mules, and mules to me don't sound particularly speedy, how is it possible for a report from the sheep shearing to reach David before his sons do? So did someone overtake them on a camel? Was it the eagles from Lord of the Rings or something like that? It's impossible to imagine that David actually heard a real report before his sons got to him. That's the first puzzle. But the second puzzle is why does David believe this so easily? 
We got to know David over the course of our time in 1 and 2 Samuel, and you may remember that he is somebody who has often been given reports. He's got spies everywhere. He's often being told things by a spy or an eyewitness or a messenger, and he never believes them at face value. You may remember the time that poor Amalekite man in chapter 1 brought the terrible news of the death of his son Jonathan, of, of, of Saul and his son Jonathan at the Battle of Mount Gilboa. And David interrogated him. Where are you from? What happened? How do you know? Tell me all about it. But here, verse 31, he takes this extremely dramatic report of the slaughter of all of his sons at face value. And he just keels over and lies on the ground. Well, what can explain these puzzles and what does it tell us about what's going on? Well, that word report can have various kind of meanings, can't it? It can be a report that's come from the actual scene, but it can also be more like gossip, speculation. You know, the kind of thing that just starts in a place like a palace and builds and becomes exaggerated as it passes around. And more importantly, the reason David believes that report so easily is because this is what he suspected and feared all along. And confirmation of this now comes in the form of David's wise friend who we met last time, his nephew, Jonadab. Now, Jonadab seems to always know a great deal, doesn't he? Verse 32, but Jonadab, son of Shimei, David's brother, said, my Lord should not think that they killed all the princes, only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's expressed intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My Lord the king should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead, only Amnon is dead. Now, Jonadab is an interesting character. He is one of these people who just sort of knows things, and he's always there, he's always got his word in the king's ear, and if you know uh, worm tongue from Lord of the Rings. Uh, sorry, that's two mentions of that film in one sermon. That's bad, isn't it? But you know the kind of guy who's always there. He's kind of you know whispering in his ears. If you don't know worm tongue, maybe Thomas Cromwell from Hilary Mantle's Wolf Hall. That kind of person. He's very clever. He's very wise, and he always knows what's happening. And what Jonadab knows is what has happened and why. He knows all about Absalom's intentions. Maybe we think this was actually his idea in the first place. But more significantly, it is from Jonadab's lips that we hear very clearly the reason why. Now, if you look at Jonadab's little speech in verse 32 to verse 33, you may notice that it's very, very carefully written. It's very carefully structured. In a, in a, it's a miniature kind of sandwich structure. So we've seen this before in this series, haven't we, that this writer is capable of incredible craftiness. And here is a little miniature sandwich structure. I remember that in this kind of Old Testament writing, it's what's in the middle of the sandwich that we've got to pay attention to. So the bread of the sandwich is that repetition, my Lord should not think they kill the princes, verse 32, and my Lord should not be concerned about all the king's sons are dead, verse 33. The next layer, the butter of the sandwich, if you like, is that repetition, only Amnon is dead, verse 32, only Amnon is dead, verse 33. And so what is the meat in the middle of the sandwich? What is the most important piece of information it is the reason Amnon had to die. Look at it, verse 33. This has been Absalom's expressed intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. In this long and messy story in which God's name is never mentioned, here is the key issue, retributive 
justice. Vengeance, putting things right. This killing, John Adab explains, had to be. It was necessary. It was determined. It was essential. In order for this thing that had been done in Israel to be undone, so that Israel could once more be a kingdom of, of justice, to, can be God's kingdom, this had to be put right. Well, that is what Absalom thinks. But is that what the narrator thinks? Is that what God thinks? Has this matter been dealt with God's way? Well, there's a hint of an answer in verse 34. Notice that instead of coming to Jerusalem, Absalom flees in the opposite direction. And you may notice that word fled is, is repeated in verse 37 and 38. And so actually far from Absalom coming to kind of say, yes, this was the right thing, he flees the kingdom. He puts himself outside the kingdom. And maybe his conviction that he was doing God's will was not so strong in the cold light of day. Well, what about David? Let's see what David saw. We're taken back to Jerusalem. We see through the eyes of a watchman an unidentified group of people coming on the road towards the city, verse 35. Jonadab is there, making sure everyone knows that he was right all along, verse 35. And then David sees something that makes him cry. Verse 36, as he finished speaking, the king's sons came in wailing loudly. The king too and all his servants wept very bitterly. Now you might think, why does David weep? After all, a minute ago, he thought all his sons were dead. Now he learns that only one of them is dead. And we might be thinking, and it was the worst one as well. But David weeps because one of his sons is dead. And I think behind the weeping, there is something else. Behind David's grief, I am sure, are the words of Nathan the prophet in chapter 11, when he said the sword would never depart from David's house. David can see now, can't he, what we have been seeing, that here is the fruit of his own sin being reaped in the next generation. Brother raping sister. Brother killing brother. Grief, tears, weeping, mess. This is not putting things right God's way. This is a kingdom where things are done that should not be done. David's household is in a mess. It is a horrible place. His kingdom is in a state of chaos and pain and groaning. Absalom is no Joshua coming to clean out the world. David's world, his life, his family is in a mess. It is falling apart because of sin. But he's still the king of Israel. So what will David do? Can he sort out the mess? Well, let's look at the climax and conclusion of the passage. The passage ends with two verses that are extraordinarily difficult to understand. Verse 37 tells us that David mourned his son every day. But the problem is, which son? Well, you might assume that the son in question is Amnon. After all, he is the son who died. But then again, the comment is made in the context of Absalom's fleeing. So maybe David is mourning Absalom's absence. 
And that makes sense in the light of verse 39. The spirit of the king longed to go to Absalom, for he was concerned concerning, consoled concerning Amnon's death. That would seem to suggest that David is very upset about Absalom's three-year departure and longs to go to him. But in that case, how does he feel about Amnon's death? What does consoled concerning Absalom's death, Amnon's death mean? Does consoled mean that after three years David got over it? Or does it mean, which it could equally mean, that David was very happy about Amnon's death? It was a consolation to David that he approves of Absalom's killing. Hands up if you're confused. <laughs> so difficult is this verse that you'll see from the footnote a very rare thing in the NIV that we've actually gone to the Dead Sea Scrolls. We've gone to some ancient manuscripts which are generally not considered as reliable about as the Hebrew manuscript this is based on to try and smooth out the ambiguities. But I want to suggest actually that this story ends on a deliberately ambiguous note. There's a good rule of thumb in Bible reading, isn't it? To trust the narrator. And the whole point of the story is to remind us that the results from human sin are intractable. This is a plate of spaghetti, David's life. It is a mess. It is beyond human means to untangle. The difficulties that people find themselves in through their own sin and folly and through the sin and folly of other people are impossible to fully sort out. Most likely, suggests German commentator Walter Brueggemann, David himself does not know how he feels at this point. The denseness of the king's loss is so thick, he cannot sort it. I think there's some truth to that, don't you? Certainly makes sense psychologically, doesn't it? I mean, put yourself in David's shoes. At the end of this story, imagine David's emotions. How would you feel if one son that you loved, murdered another son that you loved because he had raped a daughter that you loved. And all the time there was this prophet standing behind you saying it's all your fault because you fell in love with a woman you never should have done. As a father, David is in meltdown. He's never going to untangle this, never. It's impossible. And I think that's why the story ends this way. The climax is an anticlimax. It ends in a mess. It ends in this way to show us the intractable, inexplicable, impossible mess that sin gets us into, that David's world has become. And I think this is true because our world is so like this, isn't it? We live in a world where things are done that should not be done, where things are done that cannot be undone, we live in a world of chaos and disorder and groaning. A world, Paul says in Romans 8, like a woman in childbirth. A world that makes us, at worst, confused, depressed, angry, bitter, hopeless, vengeful. At best, that makes us want to cry out, what will be done about this? Well, it was into this world that Jesus came. And the reason Jesus came into this world was to put it right. To do what David could not do. Jesus' mission was actually to 
sort out the chaotic kingdoms of men and replace them with the kingdom of God. It's a mission he famously expressed in the prayer he taught his disciples. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what I want to do to conclude is just offer three reflections from this passage in the light of that mission and in the light of this passage. Reflection number one. I think we learn here that it is right to long for justice. It is right to long for justice. The rape of Tamar was an outrage, something that should not be done in Israel. And if such an act were to go unanswered and unpunished, the kingdom of Israel would be a place of chaos forever. Evil would have won, and that is a terrible thought. But the God of the Bible will not let that happen. Our God is a God of justice. He is, in fact, a God of vengeance. And this may shock our modern ears to hear, but this is what the Bible says. There is something, there is something good and holy and true about Absalom's rage against his brother. There is something right about it. There is something godly about it. And you can see this throughout the Psalms. The people of God are those who cry out to God to bring justice to his world. Listen to these songs that Israel sang in the hard times. Psalm 56. On no account let our enemies escape. In your anger, O God, bring them down. Could we sing that? Hard to imagine the actions that would go with that one, isn't it? Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, judge of the earth, repay the proud for what they deserve. Or Isaiah 64. O that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down, make your name known to your enemies, cause them to quake before you. Now, we don't like this. We don't like the idea of vengeance. But this is God speaking. And actually, this is exactly what Jesus taught his disciples to pray when he said, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because how can a pure and holy kingdom come unless God destroys evil and wickedness? How can the beautiful kingdom of God come unless the fire burns everything that spoils it? And so I never realized when I was taught to pray off by heart the Lord's Prayer as a five-year-old at school, that it was a crying out for vengeance. But that's what it is. Your kingdom come. A prayer and longing and hope that God will put everything right. That he will bring vengeance. That he will bring justice. Well, there's only one more thing shocking. One thing more shocking to learn than that. And that is that Jesus himself who will bring this justice about. 
Listen to these words from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he'll punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. It is a terrible thing to pray, your kingdom come. It's a powerful thing. But it's a right thing to long for justice, knowing that Jesus Christ will put his world right, that what has been turned upside down, he will put the right way up, that what has been ruined, he will fix, that what has been broken, he will heal, that what has been shattered, he will restore, that he'll clear up the mess, that he will mend that robe that Tamar tore, that he'll take away the ashes from her head and replace it with a crown of glory, as we saw in Isaiah 61. Not because he is vindictive will he do this, but because he is planning a world of utter perfection and nothing and no one is going to stand in his way. This is the justice of God. This, Paul says in Romans 8, is what the world is waiting for. This is why. Isaiah gives us that picture of the trees and the fields and the rivers. They're poised, ready to applaud and cheer at the justice of God. Because the mess of this world is so intolerable. Even the created order is waiting for God to bring justice about. And so there's the first reflection. It is right to long for justice. In the intractable mess of life, if you believe in this God, then you need not be confused, angry, bitter, hopeless, depressed, vengeful about the state of the world. But instead, be somebody who knows how to pray, Your kingdom come. Come, Lord Jesus. Put it right. Second reflection is that while it's right to long for justice, it is actually forgiveness that we really need. See, our culture is very big on judgment and has very little concept of forgiveness. You can see this just by taking a glance at celebrity culture and social media, can't you? Someone says something that is unacceptable to the liberal elites of our day. Might be something they've said years ago. Might be just a tweet or a text message or something they put on Facebook years and years and years ago. But it comes out and it's intolerable and they are cancelled, forced to apologise. They must resign. So when J.K. Rowling, who herself was part of the liberal elite, offended the very people she had made rich and famous by saying something that was unacceptable about transgenderism, she was thrown to the walls without mercy. She was attacked by activists who claimed, and I quote, she deserved cancelling, she deserved punching, and death. We believe in our culture in judgment but not forgiveness. And if we're going to have that attitude, what are we going to do? We're going to punch everyone down who disagrees with us, pull every statue down, burn every book, 
cancel everyone, every cricket captain, every company boss, every prime minister, keep on cancelling and cancelling and punching to death until the world is exactly how we want it? Well, this is a picture of sin, isn't it? The idea that I alone know what is right. That my values are what matters. And I want to end up in a little kingdom just with me and my values. See, the problem with sinners longing for justice is that we are part of the problem. Paul puts it like this in Romans 2. He says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And Jesus put this same truth into this hilarious picture when he talked about someone straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. See, what, what, are the, what is the biggest and the smallest animal you can think of in the ancient world? The smallest animal that you can think of is a, is a gnat. What is the biggest animal you can think of is a camel. And so the judgmental hypocrite, he, he's fussing about this, this little tiny gnat, and he's straining it out so he doesn't drink it, but all the time he's swallowing a camel. That's hypocrisy. Or another picture Jesus gave was of the, uh, the, the little speck in the eye. You know, you've got a little speck in your eye and you're worried about the speck all the time. You've got a whole plank in your eye. And this is the problem. The problem is that we are part of the problem. Our mess, our sins, our wickedness needs dealing with too. It's right to want justice and fairness. It is right to pray your kingdom come. But be very careful what you wish for. Your kingdom come may be an easy prayer to pray, but it's a dangerous prayer to pray. Are you sure you want the kingdom to come? Well, thirdly then, it's right to long for justice, but what we need is forgiveness. And so, thirdly, what we really need is somewhere where justice and mercy meet. So you think about it like this. Imagine a kingdom of justice without forgiveness. That would be terrible because no one, one of us would be there. We'd all be cancelled. To pray your kingdom come would be terrifying. But on the other hand, imagine a kingdom of forgiveness without justice. That would be terrible too because it would not treat sin with the seriousness it deserves. Evil would win. And so I want you to put yourself now in Jesus' shoes. As he teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For the son of David to pray that involves a terrible paradox. A paradox that David couldn't resolve. A paradox that Absalom will not be able to resolve. It's a paradox that only Jesus could resolve. And as he taught his disciples to pray that deceptively simple prayer, he knew that the day would come when justice and mercy would have to meet. They would have to meet in him. And it would be on the day when he was thrown to the wolves when he was cancelled by human judgment, 
when he was punched to death by the angry mob, when he was hung on the cross to die, then, and only then, could the two needs of our world, justice and forgiveness, be met. Only there do we see sin treated with perfect seriousness. Only then do we see forgiveness won for sinners. Jesus came into this world to sort out the mess. And he did it through the cross. That's how he did it. To rid the world of evil, to bring all things back under his rule. But to bring all things back under his rule without destroying those who need forgiveness. It is a wonderful thing to be a Christian, isn't it? Imagine if you couldn't say the Lord's Prayer and say it safely, knowing that even as you ask for God's wrath to come, you are sheltered by that wrath from the Son of God. So this is why the gospel is a message of repentance and faith. The first Christian gospel, if I can put it that way, was preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts Two, and he said this let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ and when the people heard this they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles brothers what shall we do Peter replied repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins this world is a mess and you and I are part of the problem. If we're honest with ourselves, our lives, some of the time, is an intractable mess. Even when we are sinned against, we sin. Even when we are hurt, we hurt others. We are bitter and unforgiving. On the one hand, we're too lax. On the other hand, we're too harsh. And our sin and its consequences trail after us. But in the midst of the mess, how wonderful to know that God will sort it out his way with justice and forgiveness achieved in the cross. And so we pray, your kingdom come. Do you want to acknowledge this morning, even as you long for justice, that you are part of the problem? Do you want to thank God that in Jesus... He is able to bring perfect justice with forgiveness. Well, if you do, let me lead us in that prayer now in complete confidence that in Jesus, justice and mercy come together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever.